they eat up all the food and then they die en masse, then bacteria come in and eat up the dead algae. But the bacteria are oxygen users. In their, in their feeding frenzy, they draw down all of the oxygen in the water, and that's when you get a dead zone. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Algae. What do you know about it? Maybe you think about pond scum. Maybe you're a weird food-obsessed person like me, and you think about delicious seaweed. Maybe you think about red tide or biofuel. But no matter what the one thing you're thinking of is, you are thinking too small. And today, we're going to talk about the huge, wide, wonderful world of algae with Ruth Kassinger. Ruth is a science writer and author of Paradise Under Glass and A Garden of Marvels. Now she has a new book, Slime, How Algae Created Us, Plague Us, and Just Might Save Us. Ruth, thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I wanted to start by establishing some ground rules. What is algae? Well, it's hard to say in a way what algae is. It's not a taxonomic category like plants or animals. It's a carry-all, a, a bag full of different creatures. They're re- they, we divide them into three parts, into cyanobacteria, microalgae, and seaweed. So the very simplest and oldest are the cyanobacteria. And they have no internal organs, but they do what all algae do, which is take carbon dioxide out of the air, combine it with water, and create sugars and carbohydrates. Now, microalgae, which evolved 2 billion years after cyanobacteria, are also photosynthetic. They do the same kind of thing with sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide, but they're more complex. They have organs inside them. And they make a lot more proteins, which makes them a lot more useful to us. But they are also microscopic. So when you say organs, do you mean organelles or do you mean like they have kidneys? (laughs) No, they have organelles, (laughs) mitochondria, ribosomes. You're right. They're definitely uh, organelles, but they act like organs as we have. They form particular functions. And then, of course, there there are the seaweeds, and the seaweeds are made up of, in essence, microalgae-like cells. So every part of a seaweed, whether we're talking about the blades that look like leaves or the stipes that look like stems, are photosynthetic. And seaweeds, as you know, can be very small, or they can be really big, like the giant kelp that grow up to 200 feet tall off the ocean floor off the coast of California. So I wanted to ask, you know, we we talk about, you were just comparing seaweed to plants. Um, So for example, they have these like blades that are like leaves and they have these stipes that are like stems and they even have holdfasts that are kind of sort of like roots. How is algae different from plants? Like, how is it not a plant? Well, uh, algae don't, seaweeds don't really have roots. They have, 
a device that holds them onto a rock, but they don't draw up nutrition from the soil. They get all of their nutrition from the water that surrounds them that passes in and out of their cells. They also don't have to make all of the fancy parts of plants. They don't need bark. They don't need stems. They don't need wood. They don't need flowers. So seaweeds can put all of their energy into creating more of themselves, whereas plants on land have to spend a lot of their energy building and maintaining all these parts that allow them to fight gravity. Okay, so we have these single-celled algae, and we have these kind of multi-celled algae. And you mentioned, I think, that the macroalgae evolved like two billion years later than the cyanobacteria. I mean, when did algae happen? Let me... Let me give you the timeline here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the oldest cyanobacteria, and they were one of the first living organisms on the planet, go back to 3.8 billion years ago. And they puttered along over a couple of billion years doing what they do, which is multiply and, by the way, um, producing a little bit of waste, I call it a bubble of waste every time, which is oxygen. So bit by bit, they were putting oxygen into the ocean. Now, two billion years later, there was enough oxygen in the world that the more complicated energy demanding, and oxygen uh, is an energy supply, energy-demanding microalgae evolved. And they evolved and continued this march to oxygenate the atmosphere until about 600 million years ago, practically yesterday, when the macroalgae evolved. So the cyanobacteria have been here for 3.8 billion years, the microalgae for 2 billion years, and the seaweeds only about 600 million years. And most of these, the algae, they photosynthesize. They take in sunlight, they take in carbon dioxide and water, and they make sugar from it. Um, and they burp oxygen. Is this different from the way plants do it in any way? Are there any differences? No, they do it just like plants, and it's not surprising because every plant on Earth evolved from algae, a particular kind of algae that blew onto land, adapted to fresh water, and ultimately evolved enough to survive on damp land where rainwater falls intermittently. So, yes, you're right, they... they photosynthesize in just the same way as plants. And one of the things that humans appreciate most about both algae and plants is that they fart oxygen. Um, I know you call it a, a bubble of waste. I prefer to say fart <laughs> oxygen. Um, and I was very surprised uh, to learn from your book that in the beginning, they did not fart oxygen. They farted something else. They farted sulfur. 
how yes. how did that happen and why did they change well they're they're bacterial ancestors uh, who used uh, who used what we call um, a chemosynthesis would find sulfur compounds in the water and split the sulfur compounds, stealing a little bit of electron energy. When cyanobacteria evolved, and it's not very clear exactly how they evolved from their forebears, they had a pigment, and the pigment, the green pigment, chlorophyll, captures sunlight and is essential for the photosynthesis process. Now, photosynthesis was a much better way to live on the planet than surviving by splitting chemical compounds dissolved in the water. Those bacteria had to wait until they bumped into the appropriate food. But as for a cyanobacterium, they were surrounded by the foods that they needed, water and carbon dioxide. So they really flourished. And in fact, some of those bacteria from whom they evolved were um, killed by cyanobacteria because the cyanobacteria farted oxygen. And oxygen was toxic to many of the first bacteria that lived on the planet because they hadn't evolved in its presence. There ain't room enough on this planet for the both of us. <laughs> are there any sulfur farting algae still around? There are. There are. They. You can find them um, in toxic, uh, acidic pools. You can find them in very hot waters. And you can find them at the bottom of the ocean where there is no oxygen. And algae do a lot of, I mean, it, it turns out they're just, they're really useful. They fart oxygen and they also help fix nitrogen, which is interesting because that's something I usually think of kind of as being the realm of bacteria, like in the rhizomes of plants. Um, but algae can do it too. Uh, can you talk about why fixing nitrogen matters? Well, the most important thing is that all of our DNA and proteins and other molecules, many other molecules that our bodies use, have a component of nitrogen. And nitrogen, we're surrounded by nitrogen. It's in the air uh, at a rate of 72%. But nitrogen gas is not very useful to life. In fact, it's not useful at all we don't have any ability to take nitrogen gas and turn it into things like DNA and amino acids. And so lightning does do that essential work of splitting two um, atoms of nitrogen that are in nitrogen gas and converting it into a compound like ammonia or nitrates that life can use. But night, light, lightning doesn't make all that much usable nitrogen. And it was really a superpower of these cyanobacteria that they were able 
to turn nitrogen gas into usable nitrogen products. And the great thing is, not only could they do that for themselves, but they made so much nitrogen that they leaked about 50% of it into the surrounding waters where other life could pick it up and use it. So we really owe a huge debt to cyanobacteria for fixing most of the nitrogen on the planet. Because, of course, plants actually need it too. I mean, plants need that available nitrogen and they actually can't do that themselves. That's right. That's right. Um, and we think of algae, or at least I know I kind of think of algae as kind of single-celled, but there are these multi-celled algae too, and they can be gigantic. You know, you have these seaweed that are hundreds of feet long. Do we know how algae kind of, you know, came into the multicellular life? <laughs> well, there there's a possibility that, I, I would say that the the science is still in process on that. But there was a famous experiment which uh, was conducted back in the 1970s, which indicated that single-celled organisms, especially those that are eaten by other organisms, those algae, for example, are the food for many uh, eukaryotes. And they found that if they either clustered together sort of voluntarily, they presented a too large object to be swallowed or engulfed by a eukaryote. And there's evidence that when some algae were dividing and they divide in such a way that one becomes 16 and the covering of the original cell that was dividing, the covering failed to completely disintegrate and release the 16 subcells. And over time in experiments, when predators are around these dividing algae, the algae tend to retain that covering so that they are too big to swallow. And some scientists feel that this was the way that the very first um, seaweeds developed is by uh, a protective defensive mechanism that kept the cells together. And speaking of this this covering, um, there is another covering that all algae have, and your book is called Slime for a reason. <laughs> algae are slimy. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> what what is what is the slime exactly? Like, what's it for? <laughs> Why is it there? Well, back in the in the very early years on the planet, there was no ozone layer, and so those cyanobacteria that floated around in the sea would have been fried. The, their DNA would have been destroyed by UV light. And the only way that they were able to survive is by developing a, a, a covering, a, a coating that's made out of sugars 
It's called a phycocoloid, and it prevents sunlight from passing through and frying the creature's DNA. And that trait has been handed down over the billions of years so that still all algae and seaweeds have a slightly slimy coating to them. Now, one of the great things is that that coating today is being tested as a sunscreen for human beings. I was actually just going to ask about that. (laughs) I was (laughs) like, wow, that sounds like it'd make a great sunscreen. (laughs) It does make a great sunscreen. And there are scientists and entrepreneurs, uh, primarily in Europe um, and and mostly in Wales, that are working on just such a sunscreen, which would be great because it would be biodegradable and wouldn't harm sea life. Of course, in the meantime, one could always kind of slather oneself in algae. (laughs) If you like that green look. (laughs) I mean, it's it's about up there with that big white nose from the zinc, you know? (laughs) Good idea. Good point. (laughs) Um, Now, algae have also, it seems that algae have kind of formed a lot of successful partnerships in their lives. Um, and, and you know, they've partnered with each other to form seaweed. And they have a very successful and highly important partnership with fungi uh, that we call lichen. <laughs> um, and why are they a big deal? Because I, I think a lot of people I know when I see lichen, like, on a rock, I'm just like, okay, it's there. Holding on, keeping on, keeping on. You kind of <laughs> like them because they're tough. But I, I, what are they, why are they important? Well, for one reason, uh, for for your listeners who aren't familiar with them, they they look they can look like moss, they can look like paint, uh, they can even look uh, to those of us who live on the East Coast, they can look like Spanish moss. They have lots of different forms, and as you say, they are a combination of a fungi and an alga, and one of the interesting things about this this particular partnership is that the partners disappear in the, into the partnership. Once in a lichen forms, you can't take it apart. And one of the 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 great things today about lichen is it's the source of food. Uh, in the Arctic regions for reindeer and caribou. Um, those animals live to a great extent on lichen that grows in the far north. Lichen also played a very important role in the greening of our planet. Lichen were one of the, they may have moved onto land even before the first algae evolved to survive on land. And one of the things that they do, because the fungi uh, emit uh, some acids that dissolve rock, and the algae part is organic, together the two made what we call soil that has an organic component So lichen have always been very important in the creation of soil. And of course, they have another partnership that is 
probably most of us have seen on TV, if not in real life, but we might not necessarily be aware that it's a partnership. Algae are partners in coral. Yes. with In fact, without coral, without algae, we wouldn't have coral reefs. Um, many people don't know that corals are actually an animal. What we think of as, as corals is the calcium carbonate shell that they build for themselves to protect themselves. But inside, there's an animal that looks something like an anemone. And it it doesn't move. It's it's in stays in place, but it uh, emerges from the coral home at night and captures tiny bits of food, uh, zooplankton, and some even can capture uh, little tiny fish and either push it down into their maw or sting it to death and swallow it. But that kind of um, omnivory is only provides about 10% of the coral animal's calories. The rest is supplied by algae that live inside the coral, inside the anemone part of the coral. And so the algae live in there. They're safe from any predators, and they produ- produce by photosynthesis sugars, and pass along a good part of their sugars to the coral animal. Which is so, wild to me. Like, <laughs> I only just kind of thought about it, but that basically means that corals are kind of half plant, half animal. You know, I, I, I yes, can't think of exactly any, right. I, I can't think of any other organism that is kind of taking advantage of photosynthesis while also munching like fish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great symbiosis. It is, you know, it's a perfect symbiosis, except of course that we are now interrupting that symbiosis by putting too much fertilizer in the water via runoff uh, and sewage and by warming the oceans. And this creates a, a very bad situation for the for the corals because their algae go into high gear in the warmth and with all this excess food that arrives and so they go about photosynthesizing and releasing oxygen but they're doing it at a very high rate and that means that they are releasing oxygen species that are harmful uh, you've heard the term free radicals. That's what they're releasing. And the coral animal senses that. And those free radicals would damage its DNA. And so it eje- the corals eject their resident algae. And they could survive for a while without their algae. But after weeks or months, they die. And in the meantime, with the algae having left, the coral itself turns white because it was the algae that provided the color for the coral, and they die. And most of the coral reefs around the world have been affected by coral bleaching. 
Right. And that's what that is when the corals kick out their Mm -hmm. symbiotic algae. And that can happen not just in response to the fertilizer, but also in response to like warm water temperatures, right? Exactly. Both of those rev up the metabolism of the algae. And the algae starts like eating too much and leaving too much trash around. (laughs) And the coral's like, if you do this one more time... I swear I will kick you out. <laughs> well, and sometimes the water's cool and the algae come back. But uh, most of the time, it's too late. I was actually amazed uh, to learn in your book that actually, hashtag not all corals, respond the same way to bleaching. There are different kinds of algae that actually might kind of be resistant to bleaching in a way. Yes, there are subtle differences. The the general um, species, or ge- the, the genus of algae that live in corals is called symbiodinium. But symbiodinium have lots of different varieties, and then the varieties have lots of different varieties. And this has only been discovered in the last 10 years. And some of the varieties of the varieties are a little bit better at Uh, not producing free radicals when under the stress of warm water and too much fertilizer, by which really I'm talking about nitrogen and phosphorus. And so some scientists are trying to um, encourage the colonization of corals with this other uh, variety of symbiodinium. You know, whether we'll be able to do that and have a real impact is yet to be seen. Yeah, don't those uh, more resistant symbiodinium kind of have a downside? Like they don't really do as well under normal conditions? That's that's right. They they don't either make enough uh, sugars or provide enough sugars to their resident, uh, the, the corals that are giving them a home. So in the wild, when uh, corals kick out their existing algae, sometimes they do take in one of these other varieties. But as soon as the waters cool, then they kick out the newcomers and go back to the tried and true. It's like when you're forced to eat health food and the instant you get an option, <laughs> you're like, I want my Pop-Tarts back. <laughs> Good analogy. <laughs> And of course, we think of algae as associated with water, um, but not in a always in a good way. Uh, I personally, when I think of algae, actually, the first thing I think about is eutrophication, um, which is a real issue in, in many lakes and, uh, and, and ponds and streams. Can you talk about what eutrophication is? I think people might have like a picture in their mind of like an algae covered pond, but it's more than that, right? Yes, it's when there's, you know, too too much nitrogen and phosphorus and the the algae go, uh, you know, they go into high gear in terms of reproduction. They multiply and multiply until they eat up all of the available food. And some of these algae are toxic. They produce toxins, perhaps as a defense mechanism. And others, you know, even if they don't produce the toxin, because they eat up all the food, and then they die en masse, uh, 
then bacteria come in and eat up the dead algae. But the bacteria are oxygen users. In their, in their feeding frenzy, they draw down all of the oxygen in the water, and that's when you get a dead zone. And there are no other uh, fish or other life in the water. And at the moment, one of the biggest dead zones in the world, but not the biggest, is in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, scientists believe that this year, <clears throat> the, the size of that dead zone will be about the size of the state of Massachusetts. It has a, a very serious impact on uh, the, the fishing community. Uh, fishermen have to go out much farther to, to get fish. Um, and, of course, it has a negative impact uh, on the coastal communities because fish and other animals are killed and uh, uh, line up in dead masses on the shore and drive away tourists. So it's a serious, very serious problem. And it's it's funny because I feel like I was hearing a lot about eutrophication issues a few years ago. You know, you'd hear about them, especially in like the Great Lakes. You'd mm -hmm. hear about eutrophication issues. But I haven't really he been hearing about that recently. It's kind of receded into the background, but clearly it's it's not going away. <laughs> No, it's it's definitely not going away. In fact, there are many more uh, events of toxic algae blooms or just algae blooms, even if it's not toxic, than in the last 10 years, it, the, the number has gone up dramatically. Uh, and in Florida, the, the situation has been particularly terrible because they have several kinds of blooms going on at the same time. On the West Coast, they have red tide, which is an overgrowth of cyanobacteria, uh, which happens to turn the water a, a tinge it red. And in Lake Okeechobee and in many of the rivers, they have green algae, which has gone into overdrive and is so thick it looks like guacamole. And still, every year in Lake Erie, uh, around the, the city of Toledo, algae blooms uh, are threatening to the public water supply because the Toledo's uh, water pipes are several miles into Lake Erie. And I was very interested because you actually covered in your book a way that they're trying to remediate this problem, which actually involves more algae. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I it's, loved it. It sounds fascinating. Can you talk about, they sound like concrete slabs coated in yes. algae? Yes. This is a, a, a wonderful company called Hydromentia. And what they do uh, off the coast, near the, on the coast of uh, Florida, where there is a lot of fertilizer runoff and a terrible problem with excess algae. They build concrete, what looked like to me when I first went to see them, concrete parking lots. And the water arrives from a water purification plant and from canals that crisscross Florida and carry away stormwater. And that stormwater is polluted with too much nitrogen 
and phosphorus. And so the water runs over this almost flat concrete parking lot. It takes about 15 minutes for water arriving at the top and leaving at the bottom. It takes that long for the water to flow. And in this situation, algae grow on the concrete. And there's something called turf algae, which are little filaments. So they're they look something like tiny seaweeds. Though I have and to say, I've stepped in turf algae before, and it's it's gross. It's gross. It's, it's, it's gross. You know, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible. But, <laughs> but it's in great. This case, it's very <laughs> useful because that turf algae scarfs up all the nitrogen and phosphorus, and the water that runs off at the other end has been cleaned. Has been cleaned, and it's free of these pollutants that are terrible. And then once a week or so, uh, I watched how a, uh, a little kind of looked like kind of like a snowplow went past back and forth over the surface and scraped off all the turf algae, which is then taken away. And sometimes it's used for fertilizer. And then the turf algae grows back. So it's, it's a very creative and quite low tech way of dealing with the excess fertilizer. It's kind of like solving eutrophication with like the first step of more eutrophication. <laughs> yes, or fighting fire with fire. Yes, <laughs> except a lot wetter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as we're talking about algae villains, I was amazed uh, to find out from your book that Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds was inspired by algae which yes. is amazing. Can you tell me the story? <laughs> well, uh, back when Alfred Hitchcock was getting ready to work on his movie called The Birds, there had been, and he had read, a story that came out in um, a California papers, which talk about an incident that happened uh, at three o'clock in the middle of the night on a coastal town in a coastal town it turned out that birds in this these this case shearwaters were flying into houses and uh, creating a, a terrible din and just like in the movie scaring people and people ran out in the middle of the night with their flashlights and the these shearwaters, which have a wingspan of three feet, would fly at them. So it was quite a terrifying incident for these residents. It turns out that the birds had been eating fish that had eaten algae that were toxic and were in they were there was an algae bloom of toxic algae that pr produce domoic acid and the domoic acid was driving the birds crazy and so Hitchcock was obviously impressed by this story and turned it into the movie that we know as the birds and there are lots of algae types that are, are toxic and you mentioned red tide before um, and aside from literally turning the water red uh Red tide is, is kind of algae at some of its most nefarious. Um, what is a red tide? It's an overgrowth of a 
an al- a cyanobacteria called Karenia, and it, it has a, a very unpleasant effect on humans, uh, besides killing uh, millions of fish. Uh, if you're walking on the beach in Florida during a red tide, uh, after a few minutes, you'll think that you've suddenly developed asthma because you are panting and gasping, and your eyes will be watering terribly. And uh, people simply can't go to the beach when there is a red tide. Yeah, um, and it can actually um, some some algae blooms can actually uh, end up in fish, which then end up in people, and Correct. can be quite deadly, especially mussels. Right. Right on the west coast, I think even even as we speak, uh, that very same demoic acid problem. An algae bloom that produces demoic acid it has closed down parts of the um, mollusk fishery clams and mussels. And there's also, I mean, algae, they're, they're everywhere that there is water. <laughs> um, and there's even algae on snow. And that's bad. Uh, yeah. Even though it's very pretty. <laughs> I actually yes. read a news article about this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about watermelon snow? <laughs> Yes, watermelon snow is an uh, an algae that um, has a red pigment to that it uses to capture sunlight, and it can live in very cold places, including the Arctic. And it's dormant for most of the year and in, and invisible. But when the spring and summer come, and just there's just a little bit of melt as the sun beats down on the top of the snow, then these algae bloom, and they can be quite beautiful. Uh, They turn the snow a beautiful pink color. Hikers comment on the red snow when it's concentrated in their boots. It, you know, it's a bright red. So it's quite beautiful, but it is um, making the climate change problem even worse because since it's red, it absorbs more light. And wherever you see a, and that, and when it absorbs light, it is also absorbing heat. And when you see a patch of watermelon snow, you will almost see that it is sunken down into the surrounding snow because it is melting the snow. So algae is contributing to uh, global warming and the melting of of the uh, ice fields. Do we know how how much of a role these algae and watermelon snow is playing in the melting of ice pack? Uh, I, I don't think that there's any scientific uh, consensus on how much it's contributing. Some sometimes people, you know, scientists will point to a particular ice field and say, oh, you know, 17%, uh, the the snow is melting at a rate 17% higher than it would have if the algae hadn't been there. That's, yeah. And it's interesting because it sounds like we've kind of 
created this algae problem in a way. You know, the watermelon snow thrives when the Arctic is slightly warmer. Uh, coral bleaching happens when the oceans are slightly warmer. Dead zones and eutrophication happen when our uh, fertilizer goes into the water and provides all these extra like nutrients that allow the algae to bloom. Are algae, in a way, kind of beneficiaries of climate change? In some ways, they are. Um, and, you know, they, they tend to like it warm and they tend to like more food. I mean, why not? One of the interesting things, I think, is that algae have also benefited the climate long, long ago, billions of years ago. Algae took out so much carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that they started what became a global ice age, uh, snowball earth. And they've also cleaned up our atmosphere several times since then. You know, they, they are so good at taking carbon dioxide out of the air. Um, it was about 49 million years ago that there was a, a very warm climate, even warmer than we're heading to. And a particular, uh, and, and in the Arctic, uh, the seas, the Arctic Ocean was as warm as bath water, and there were rhinoceroses trundling around on the, on the ground, and palm trees uh, in, rattling in the, in the wind. And the ocean at that point was surrounded by the continents. They had moved, shifted on their tectonic plates, and turned the Arctic Ocean into essentially a giant lake. And on that lake every summer, and the summer days were obviously very long, uh, a certain plant, a plant called azola, which is a tiny fern, grew on the surface and completely covered the surface of the Arctic Ocean. And inside the fern's leaves, just like inside corals, algae were there in a symbiotic relationship. And in fact, azola is still around today. Yeah, people in- use it in their gardens. Yes. But in any case, what happened was the azola, with its cyanobacteria inside, drew down so much carbon dioxide. They drew down 80% of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at that time and allowed the ice caps to return. So, yes, algae is, is definitely the beneficiary of our warmer climate, but also algae... <laughs> Ultimately, far in the future, it's quite likely that algae will solve our climate change problem. Of course, we won't be here because we we will have gone extinct from our own folly, but uh, algae will be there to clean up the mess. Have faith in the algae. It's (laughs) funny because we've been talking about red tides and eutrophication and, you know, algae kind of sound kind of neutral to not super nice right now, but they are really amazing. And I was very impressed um, by all the things that you wrote about in your book that people are trying to use algae for. Can you talk about what made you want to write a book about algae in the first place? 
yes, I was uh, working on a book about the history of glass conservatories, and I wanted to find the most modern use of a glass conservatory, and I found it in El Paso, Texas, where an entrepreneur had started a company that was trying to turn algae into fuel oil. And he was growing algae in these 8 by 10 foot panels, plastic panels that received sunlight through the roof of the greenhouse. And then he would uh, take the algae water out, spin out the algae, and in a variety of ways, get the oil out of the algae. Algae are filled, some species of algae are filled with, with oil, which is easily convertible into fuel like gasoline and diesel. And uh, he did not succeed, but when I saw what he was doing, I thought, wow, this is incredible. This is incredible that we could be, maybe we could have algae oil and uh, we could have oil without uh, pumping it out of the ground and we could grow it without using any arable land or any fresh water. So I got interested in algae and the more I looked at algae, the more I realized how wonderful they are. And I wanted to kind of pursue this biofuel thing because it sounds amazing. Um, you know, these glass panels in the desert, you know, shielding these, you know, huge things of algae, which then turn into gasoline and yay, everything is saved forever. But we are not driving algae powered cars yet. Why? What's holding them back? It's really a question of price. It's not the technology per se. Uh, from 2000, starting in 2008 and on and off until 2013, when the price of gasoline or price of oil dropped dramatically and these algae oil businesses went out of business because they couldn't compete. Uh, the, the scientists and engineers learned a tremendous amount about how to make algae oil. They got the price down, uh, so so they claim, to about $7.50 a gallon, which is obviously it's way too high, but still, it's not inconceivably high. It's not like it's $240 a gallon. And since the businesses ceased, there have been a lot of... Uh, advances in both genetics and engineering that lead me to conclude that it's still a fuel worth pursuing. Things like CRISPR um, have the ability to make algae even more effective at turning carbon dioxide and water into oils. Uh, so I'm, I'm feeling that as we, as we, meaning mankind, comes to grips with the problems of burning so much fossil fuel that algae oil will get another look. We just need to get desperate enough. <laughs> you know, um, 
Bethany, I am running out of time, and yes. I would like to continue. Thank you. I wish we had I more like time. I, Thank you so much for being be here and continue. opening our eyes to algae. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Ruth Cassinger and her book, Slime, How Algae Created Us, Plague Us, and Just Might Save Us, we've got links at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. I will also put a link to the recipe from the book that I tried. She's got a whole section on food and eating algae, and we just didn't get to it. But I got to try one of the recipes. It's called Savory Cheddar and Dulce Scones, and they came out really super tasty. So check it out. Give us a try. And there's more than that on our website. There's links to subscribe, which you should do if you don't already. There's links to follow us. Tell us what you like or don't like about the show. There's also a link to our Patreon page where you can help us out if you're so inclined with a monthly donation. The monthly donation gives you access to fun extras and nice things, and it helps support the podcasters who work so hard to bring you this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 